Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This week, I want to go over three very provocative and interesting findings in people with a rare genetic mutation associated with ASD. This is a mutation in the shank gene on chromosome 22. It's one of the genes known to be associated with ASD, and people that have this mutation actually have a syndrome of features and disabilities, not just ASD. It's called Phelan-McDermott syndrome. But about 80%, depending on where the numbers come from, of people with PMS, which is short for Phelan-McDermott syndrome, also have ASD. This is one of those syndromes that ASF is working with to better understand rare genetic forms of autism. This doesn't apply to all people with ASD, of course. Most people don't have a mutation in the shank gene. But those with Phelan-McDermott syndrome or PMS that do have a mutation in this gene have a high rate of ASD, seizures, GI problems, motor issues, and intellectual disability. But studying these forms of ASD with known molecular targets can help all of autism spectrum disorders. Last year, we did an interview with the clinician at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Alex Kolovzon, who treats people with PMS, and he talked about the potential for a drug that's been effective in PMS called insulin growth factor to treat other forms of ASD. That podcast was on September 9th, 2018, and you should check it out. I also want to divulge that I'm a board member of the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation, which is the parent advocacy group that helps families with PMS. I'm very proud of this and expect that any minute now they will see that I'm clueless and kick me off, but for now, I'm still there. Phelan McDermott Syndrome has a patient registry. It was started and maintained by the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation. This means families go in or their clinicians go in to a database and enter information about themselves or their family member or their patient. This includes what symptoms they're experiencing, when, how severe, what they get treatment for, Do they have medical features like GI problems and seizures? When were they diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder? And also, when did they get the genetic test that diagnosed them with PMS? It asks about other symptoms and physical issues. A lot of people are in wheelchairs. It asks about their intellectual ability. It wants the scores if they have them. And of course, what symptoms of ASD are present? These patient registries are essential, and for newer genetic disorders associated with ASD, we're so thankful that Simon's Searchlight is providing some infrastructure to groups who need a registry but can't afford to set one up. They're useful for industry, but also for a basic understanding of what is going on in their particular syndrome. I cannot emphasize how important a patient registry is. ASD used to have a registry. It was called the Interactive Autism Network, or IAN. It kind of sunsetted, but Spark is taking it over. Certain clinics also keep their own patient registries. The Autism Treatment Network is a registry that was based on clinical data that doctors entered. Ideally, these patient registries would be longitudinal, so symptoms could be tracked over time. But this ultimately means that the family has to go in multiple times over the course of a lifespan and enter the same information over again. It can be very tedious. If your child is exhibiting a symptom even your doctor can't explain, it's good to have a registry to go back to to see if anyone else with that mutation on that same gene has the same symptoms. And in the case I want to describe today, the registry assisted in the understanding of a new feature of Phelan McDermott syndrome called decompensation. I'm going to talk about three new studies that looked at what was going on with this phenomenon. 
One used the registry, one did a literature review to better describe it, and then a third report was on a small subset of people who received treatment for it. First, what is this decompensation? Great question, and I'm glad I asked it. For many of these lifelong but childhood onset disorders, including ASD, what does the future hold is an important question that needs research. That same psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, Alex Kolovzon, who's at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, treats a number of these kids with Phelan McDermott syndrome. And he was noticing that in adolescence, kids with PMS were showing progressive catatonia, psychosis, and cognitive deterioration. Not everyone, but some of them. There is, as he put it, a, quote, sudden change in the psychopathological presentation of patients, unquote, from adolescence to adulthood. He was also noticing this on social media in the advocacy community and at PMS family meetings. It's not necessarily regression. It's presentation of new symptoms that were causing regression and functioning. So he and a slew of researchers did a literature review. That is not what was in the registry, we'll get to that later, but what was published in the literature that matched this profile. They ended up finding reports that totaled 56 people, about half females and half males, all with Phelan McDermott syndrome. Of them, 17 had a documented ASD diagnosis or documented notation of ASD traits. So that's about a third. On average, these new troublesome symptoms started around 30 years of age, but really most of them, or the mode, that is, statistically speaking, started around 16 to 20 years of age. They weren't all that old. A lot of them started these symptoms at 12 or younger. And the symptoms were things like psychiatric issues, new aggressive outbursts, unprovoked anger, mania, and cycling between depression and mania, changes in personality, Catatonia, decrease in cognitive ability all the way to physical, no longer eating or sleeping, unable to swallow, and instability of gait. Also, new diagnosis emerged, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and OCD or anxiety. Disturbingly, seizures started about the same time. Not every time, but lots of times. So that was a literature review. And then an amazing Phelan McDermott syndrome mom and doctor Dr. Tazzy Kohlenberg, God, I hope I'm getting her name pronounced correctly. I've been talking to her over email. Well, she looked at detailed data from 38 people from the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Research Registry. So these may have overlapped, but probably didn't really overlap with the published reports. This group had the foresight to ask families to enter their children's symptoms and features across time into this common database so phenomena like this one could be tracked and identified. This particular analysis was to understand the patterns of psychiatric illness and recovery, or no recovery as the case may be, experienced by these individuals who experienced a midlife or early adolescence illness. What did they find? The 38 people with PMS in the registry that experienced this ranged from age 13 to 50, but females, unlike in the literature review, outnumbered males four to one. That's generally important, but will be crucial later when I discuss a paper around therapeutic intervention. The proportion of people with small changes in the shank gene involving just a few letters of the DNA code, as opposed to large deletions, was higher than expected. This raises the possibility that people with small shank gene changes could be more vulnerable to these psychiatric illnesses than those with larger de deletions. 
You'd think that that would be the opposite, right? I mean, I would normally assume that. The larger mutation, the more intense the crisis. Nope, that's not the way it works. The paper includes detailed case summaries and a discussion of what forms of psychiatric illness this group with PMS experienced, what treatments they received, whether they had a loss of skills after psychiatric illness, and if they did, how much they recovered. Dr. Kohlenberg wants everyone to know that among the people in the study, number one, the psychiatric symptoms that were reported a best fit of diagnoses to bipolar, which is manic depression. There were also some new intense anxiety symptoms. Nobody had a diagnosis that fit schizophrenia. About half had symptoms of catatonia during their episodes. Catatonia, unfortunately, though, wasn't diagnosed or treated. And when it was treated, it responded well to usual treatments for catatonia. Two-thirds experienced a loss of skills that began after the first psychiatric episode. Of those who had a loss of skills, about half recovered at least moderately. It's important to keep in mind that that study describes a self-selected group of families. So they were the ones that went into the registry, filled out the information, and revealed all of these things about themselves or their loved one. It should complement the literature review, not replace it. They were also families who came forward to participate in a response to an invitation. There's also likely to be other families who didn't participate whose experiences may have been similar or even different. So it's not exactly a non-biased ascertainment. That's okay. This is a new phenomenon. We need to describe it and we need to then think about it and then maybe do a larger study. It means that people cannot say how common these people are with PMS or in autism in general, and it can't tell us these patterns of psychiatric illness are typical. Finally, let's talk turkey. I mean, let's talk treatment. A case series of four girls who had experienced the psychiatric illness and decompensation was described in the literature. In this case series, the girls were prepubertal, had stable symptoms, and then all of a sudden showed crying, hallucinations, insomnia, mutism, urinary retention, and then incontinence. Kudos to former ASF fellow Alexandra Bay from Duke for putting this together and getting it published. But a PMS mom, that Dr. Kohlenberg, really did push this report. What brought together these four girls was that in all of the cases, the doctors suspected autoimmune encephalopathy. So the treatment was immune-related. Remember, this is four out of, let's say, the possible 38 that were described in the registry. I don't even know if the four were in the registry, but this is kind of a small number. It doesn't mean that the course of treatment is recommended for every person with decompensation or late-onset psychiatric illness. Please do not order immunotherapy on the internet. Go to a doctor, a real doctor, and get an evaluation. If you have a child with PMS but don't know where to look, email me at ahalliday at autismsciencefoundation.org or go straight to the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation website and ask for help. They can and they will help you. All of these girls had medical reasons, as in blood testing, that revealed an immune component to their symptoms. The doctor didn't just consider it, they tested for it. All four patients exhibited chronic relapsing courses of psychiatric illness during a period of treatment and follow-up ranging anywhere from three years to six years. Two of the four girls returned to their previous level of functioning. The treatment was something called IVIG. It stands for intravenous, meaning the vein, immunoglobulin infusion. 
Immunoglobulin, or Ig, is a compound made from people who donate blood that's super concentrated of antibodies. Antibodies for what? Well, pretty much everything that people have antibodies for in their blood. It's typically used in people that don't have enough antibodies. It could be that they don't have antibodies in their blood to fight off an infection to begin with, or it could be because in rare cases, ironically, the body's immune system is directed at itself, attacking cells that produce antibodies. I know, I get it, I get it. Why would nature direct the body to attack its own immune system? Thankfully, these cases are somewhat rare, but they do exist. Without getting too much into the biological function of IVIG, let's just say it boosts the immune system. Dr. Bay and other people on the paper use these findings as evidence to theorize that the immune system interacts with the shank receptor in the brain. The girls that were responsive to this immune treatment may have had specific types of the mutation of the gene that made the receptor more susceptible to an autoantibody attack. That is, in the case where someone does not have enough antibodies and the body starts to attack itself, IVIG treatment may help. I know this seems complicated. It is complicated. But what I want everyone to know that not everyone is going to be responsive to IVIG. Sometimes IVIG isn't covered by most insurance plans, and even when it is, it's a nightmare to get approved. I could tell you stories that would curl your hair. So don't run out and demand IVIG, and please don't buy it on the internet. It may not work, and you'll be out a ton of money and even more precious a lot of time. Your case is stronger if you get a thorough medical evaluation. It does mean that if your child is experiencing some of these symptoms, go to a doctor and maybe run a whole exome sequencing scan to look for this particular mutation. It may help. I don't know if it does, but it may. This is where genetics can, in fact, despite cries to the contrary, help inform treatment. Now, the purpose of me sharing these studies with you is not because I want to scare you, but because it may be an issue that you or your family ends up dealing with. I certainly hope it isn't, but awareness is always a good thing. Not just if your child has PMS, but if he or she has ASD. And also, he or she may have another rare genetic disorder associated with ASD. What we know now is from the studies looking at people with Phelan McDermott syndrome. Usually at this point in the podcast, I say, talk to you next week. But next week, next Monday the 2nd, we're taking off. There is no podcast. ASF is hosting their annual scientific advisory board meeting, which means later on in March, we'll be announcing who was awarded those pre and postdoctoral fellowships. So stay tuned for that. Also, in lieu of a podcast on social media, I want to ask for your thoughts on future podcasts. Are we on the right track here? What do you want to hear about? Do you have a burning research question that you want answered? Sometimes these podcasts are topic related and sometimes they're more newsy, but really kind of come at me with ideas. I'm open to them. Thank you again for listening and talk to you in two weeks.